That's Frank X. Walker, and this is The Poet and the Poem from the Library of Congress. The series is produced by Forest Woods Media Production. Post-production by Mike Turpin, MET Studios. We wish to thank the Library of Congress for making the program possible. Funding is provided by the Snippet Fund, Natalie Canavore and Sandy Jackson Cohen. Mike Turpin is our engineer, and I'm Grace Cavalieri. What do we mean when we talk about personality? What is your personality? It is the way you get along with other people around you and with your changing environment. You want certain things from other people. The way to go about getting those things reveals your personality. Howdy, everybody. I'm Rose Maddox, and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area. Good morning, and welcome to the June edition of Black Book Talk. I am Patricia Welch, Librarian Emeritus. With me are Emma Jackson Ford, Bookworm. Obi Hill, Community Historian. And we are delighted to welcome today Kelly McWilliams, who is the author of Your Plantation Prom is Not Okay. Kelly, welcome to Black Book Talk. Thank you so much for having me. And we enjoyed the passage. Tell us a little bit, you know, no, whatever you call it, no spoilers, but just tell us a little bit about the book, a little bit about the plot. So this is the story of uh, Harriet Douglas, who is raised on an old plantation in Louisiana that her historian father has remade and restored into an enslaved people's museum. And they guide tours, they lead tours for anyone who wants to come learn about the history. And unfortunately, she's just lost her mother and she's having a little bit of a rough time at the end of her high school journey. And she finds out that an actress and her influencer daughter have purchased the plantation next door to hers that's been abandoned for many years. And they have plans to turn it into a party venue, a celebrity wedding venue. Uh, We see a lot of those. And eventually it will become a prom venue for her high school prom. So she is incensed by that. And this story charts her journey, dealing with her feelings about what all of that means and uh, trying to cancel this plantation in 2022. So when I read the title, I laughed. I kept thinking, well, what exactly is her objection to the plantation from? Yes, um, well, this book was partly inspired by sort of my life growing up and the things that I that I saw. My, my mother is a writer and an activist and has written about Black history for ages. And we spent a lot of time traveling in the South. She would take me on her, her book project. So, you know, we wherever she went, she would tow along a tiny version of me. And Black history was like a very sacred and kind of important vein in our family. And I think that I was in middle school when I heard about Reese Witherspoon getting married 
on a plantation. And it seemed like a horrible disrespect to me. And we had sort of a, a news cycle about it at the time where people said, oh, you know, that's not, this is not a place of celebration. Um, this needs to be a place that's used for healing, if anything, and for education. And um, I thought, well, okay, that's settled then, <laughs> you know. But of course, people have been getting married on plantations in the South for ages, you know, not just celebrities, but regular folks. And we had more celebrity weddings that brought this into the news cycle over and over again. And it just sort of, like many things in life, felt like we were on that carousel of being unable to determine, the Black community was really unable to self-determine what does a plantation space mean. We would say, this is what it means to us. This is how we think that these spaces should be used. And then someone would turn around and use it for something totally different that feels like a complete disrespect. And actually this book was, was in copy edits when Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez had their replica plantation wedding. And I remember just being floored again I'm, every time. <laughs> it surprises me every time, um, you know, that this could be allowed to happen with two such popular stars that they didn't have the education, the grounding and the awareness. But the plantation prom in particular those do happen, and you hear stories about sort of the outcry over them. I think in a way they're even more insidious because those young people who are, that's the party of their life, you know, that they're going to remember for such a long time, it speaks to the failure of our education system as a whole to not represent these spaces in a, um, in a rightful way. But it is a funny title in a way. It's very out there, very bold. And in part, I got a kick out of just being able to put a title like this on the shelves. Like I was just like, you know, I, <laughs> you could not have done this in the 90s, right? I watched um, my mother sort of claw her way into the industry. She wrote books that nobody wanted to review, nobody wanted to talk about. When she wrote about uh, the Tulsa race massacre, you know, nobody wanted to say a word about it. And just to, to be in this place, like as, as much as it seems like we're not making the progress that I always want to see, there are changes. And, and to be able to put this, this title up was a, an exciting thing for me. The plantation was abandoned next to the one that uh, Harriet's uh, parents owned. And now they're doing a lot of remodeling and some people were saying, well, this seems like a new form of gentrification. Could you speak on that? Yes, in the plantation, the, the fictionally in the book, what was happening? Or are we speaking about sort of real life and where this is based on? But the gentrification aspect, I mean, I think the, the main problem is that they moved in to this plantation to make money. You know, that that was, they were going to spin a dollar off of this. And the reason that they think that that's okay is because the symbol of the plantation isn't stable for all Americans. You know, some Americans see one thing and are told one narrative and another have a totally different idea that's rooted in sort of gone with the wind and the original narratives about, you know, why it was okay to hold enslaved people in the first place. And that narrative in the South in some ways has won 
And you can see that it's one when somebody moves into a plantation like this and is like, well, let's make it into a business. Let's make it into an Airbnb, for example. There are quite a number of those. I remember hearing on NPR an, an interview with a woman, this was ages ago, who, who was turning her enslaved people's cabins into an Airbnb where you could stay and have this strange past experience. And she was a white woman and it was personally and privately benefiting her. She didn't think about who else might have claim to that land. So it does become a pretty big and thorny issue really quickly. And this story is based, it well was inspired by a real plantation out in Louisiana, the Whitney Plantation Museum, which was actually purchased by a white man. It was one of these abandoned plantations. John Cummings III purchased it and he had plans to turn it into a, a pleasure home. You know, his, his, he was gonna golf out there. That was his big idea. And then he started going through some of the historical papers. He understood intellectually that it had been a plantation, but it wasn't until he saw the actual documents calling people, categorizing people by, by sale and by price that he really felt in his heart what that meant. And what he said was, you know, well, if I don't know, you know, this lawyer, rich lawyer from New Orleans, then who knows? And, and in some ways that's the problem is that the story has been so effectively buried by these, these antebellum symbols and this gone with the wind, the parasols and the, the fantasy of the old South that people just don't know what they're doing. So he turned this place into a museum and he also looked into this from a gentrification angle. He made sure that profits go to support the surrounding community because we know that most people in these communities, they tend to be very impoverished You'll often have direct descendants of the enslaved peoples in the community. And particularly at the Whitney in Louisiana, they're on River Road. And River Road is also known as Cancer Alley. And they call it Cancer Alley because in the vacuum that these plantations left behind, these petrochemical companies sprang up. They took advantage of this space, this cheap land and this lack of political power. Well, nobody's gonna vote us out of here. And as a result, pregnant women, children, and the elderly have higher rates of cancer than they should demographically. So it's fascinating to look at these places because they just explode out into the larger community, sort of what they mean and how they work in the world. I want to talk about some of the characters. And of course, I want to start with Harriet. And I thank you for naming her Harriet Douglas. Because, of course, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we got a little Harriet Tubman right here. And the fact that you had the Douglas with two S's, I said, okay, Frederick, you're being honored, too. This is a young woman. She's 17 years old. And so much has happened to her. I mean, not just, you know, the, the, the people next door and racism in general, but she's lost her mother. And she is struggling with some very personal issues in terms of anger management, depression, so could you talk a little bit about her? But she's still, she is still one spunky <laughs> young woman. We, we, you gotta love her fire, you know, cause it's, it's inspired by all the right things, but it is a difficult time in her life. It absolutely is. She's very much in the rage stage of grief, which um, I think kind of worked for me on, on two levels. As a high school student growing up and sort of realizing 
all these things that we've been talking about, sort of how Black history is, is overshadowed. And then we go through our, our personal issues too, and we see the things that happen to our, our family members and our community members. And for me in particular, I think like watching a, a, her mother was also very passionate about the museum in this book and just a, a sort of a, a very strong presence, somebody who could you know, always get that funding and sort of, you know, she was working it, this was her whole life's journey. And then for Harriet, it seems like such an insult to her life and to her work that after she passes, this, you know, influencer and actress, they, they spring up as if her work had never happened, as if it had never existed. And I remember what it felt like to watch sort of an activist parent come up against these walls, you know, time and time again and, and cry and, and, and suffer time and time again. And I experienced it personally as a rage in my teens and in my 20s. I was real scrappy. <laughs> so Harriet is very much based on, on, um, on life. And I found that the challenge of being able to, to get to that next stage, you know, for Harriet and for me, to keep telling these stories and to stay in the fight, you have to find a way to deal with that anger that's productive, where it doesn't just tear you down. Like Harriet is really standing kind of on the edge of a cliff. She's, there's so much suffering. It could go either way for her. Yes. You know, her life could completely fall apart or she could sort of get it together. And I think there are some signs that she was always going to get it together. And, and one of those signs is just her sense of humor, her, her coping skills, her, you know, her, her eagerness to sort of reach out to people. Going to therapy was very important to her. And also finding a way to channel her rage and her anger into her social media activism. In the book, you'll notice that it's when she starts her TikTok that some of that, the poison of the fire starts to bleed away, right? And I found that to be true in life too, that when I started putting stories into the world that I felt were promoting social justice, that were gonna move things forward, that were doing good work, reaching out to people and touching people, my anger diminished in, in, to a manageable, <laughs> containable sort, power source, right? Because we really want our anger to be a power source and not something that is eating us from the inside. What was important to me is, one, that her father immediately got her into therapy because this was serious. I mean, it was, you know, she wasn't like just an angry kid. You could see how her emotions were really affecting her life and at, at, at a certain point it seemed like they were undermining everything so though I have to admit her therapist would not have been my favorite choice for a therapist I was like really but I think just addressing the whole issue of young people and all of, of people of color you know having mental health and emotional issues and addressing it and being able to move forward and not just saying well I'm just going to tell my friend, my best friend, no. So I, I, I love that that was addressed. Thank yes. You. And I would like to plug Therapy for Black Girls, <laughs> which yes. is a resource that we have today that I think, you know, Harriet really could have benefited from because what you see in the book, which is inspired in part too by, you know, life in the 90s, <laughs> like when you wouldn't necessarily have that access and she, she lives in a small town and her dad sort of doesn't prioritize it the way that maybe we would want him to. There's a, there's a culture difference between her and her therapist. And that's something that they have to work out between them before she can get anywhere. And sometimes that burden is like one burden too many. And so 
shout out to Therapy for Black Girls. It's wonderful. Yes. Speaking of characters, I really love the character of Professor Douglas. I love his fast food uh, crack addiction. No, I think he said fast food was his weed. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But I also loved his T-shirts. Do you see T-shirts like that? Where did that come from? There are some t-shirts that make some of these jokes um, online for, you know, the, the history, dad history economy is, is chugging along out there. So you can find some of these joke shirts. I thought about sort of trying to collect them for the book and send them out to people. I thought that would be a fun thing. But Professor Douglas is just, he's in love with his subject and he's not afraid to show it. He's a true nerd um, in the best sense. And I, I love writing him. It showed. He was a great character. Oh, thank you so much. Every twist and turn, there's conflict and confusion. The book is humorous, but in a, but it's serious, too. So you vacillate between laughter and anger. And then there is this one internal person, you might say, who comes out could you tell me or us a little about this monster? <laughs> yes. Yes. So Harriet, um, who's, you know, in a lot of trouble at the start of that story and very unpredictable, she calls the anger that she feels and, and what it sort of causes her to do in the world, the rage monster. And she kind of personifies it because it doesn't feel like her. You know, it just it doesn't, she wouldn't recognize herself in the mirror with some of the things that she's, she's been up to. And so I put it sort of in the book as something that she can learn to work with. You know, this is the rage monster is like a side of herself that she needs to put to bed. And her therapeutic journey is really learning to deal with it in a better and different way. And maybe even to not call it a monster at all. Because what Harriet's really overlooked is some of the positives that she can she can turn her anger into. But that um, vacillation between the humor and the seriousness was a real hard tightrope to walk, I will say. But I don't think I could have written this book if I hadn't been able to sort of dial up that humor. You know, just for me to sort of get through the material, to keep going through the research, I needed to to get that. And when I tell people about sort of what the book is about and I say, but it's funny, <laughs> you know, and they're like, no, nobody believes me. <laughs> but it is. In fairness, we have to balance this off by talking about the other one, the other main character, really, I guess, maybe the primary other main character. And that is Layla Hartwell. I have to admit, at the beginning of the book, I was like, uh, I know who you are. <laughs> I was expecting a stereotypical person, but actually she turned out to be quite the surprise. So tell our listeners a little bit about her. So Layla Hartwell is the daughter of the actress who bought the plantation next door. And she surprisingly disagrees with what her mother is doing. Although it's unclear if she disagrees with it for principled reasons or because she wants to get back at her mother, you know, and Harriet, she, because she remembers that her mother's strength really came from reaching out to people who were different from her, reaching out to white folks, and she really believed that, that education could, could help everything. She tries to reach out to Layla Hartwell and she ends up forming this sort of complex 
interesting bond. And I agree with you. Like when I first started writing Layla, I was, I thought I knew more about her than I did, but I didn't want her to be a stereotypical sort of mean girl character that I think we've seen enough of. And, you know, the book opens with sort of, um, you know, a Karen moment. So I thought we, we had enough of that representation. Like, let's dig a little deeper. How did Layla become who she becomes? What are her, how can, do we have hope for her in the future? And I think that we do. And the relationship between her and Harriet really became kind of the spine of the book in a certain way. And um, a little microcosm question, you know, can Harriet reach this girl who is special and who is different from her mother um, and represents kind of a different generation? If she can reach her, that would give Harriet a lot of hope. You're not new at this writing thing, are you? Is this your fourth novel? Um, hey, I always have to count them up. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, this is, yes, this is the fourth one. And it's been really exciting. Yeah, my, my first book came out in 2020, my first new debut. I also published a small short book when I was younger. And then last year I had a book called Mirror Girls come out. And then your plantation prom is not okay. And I'm chugging away on, on the next one. It's sort of like a habit. I can't quit. When do you think it'll come out? Um, so the next book probably won't come out until around 2025. Um, and I think it's turning out to be a historical fantasy set in uh, construction era, reconstruction era, Arkansas. You're listening to Black Book Talk on KBOO. And our guest is Kelly Mac Williams today. I really enjoyed this book and I highly recommend it. In fact, I'm going to buy a couple more. I want to know a little bit more about the mother. I want to hear a little bit more about Harriet's mother because though she's deceased when the book opens, she is still very much a character in the book. And I think we're looking at about six minutes now, so we can do this. Tell us about her. Yes, yeah, so uh, Harriet's mother is everything she aspires to be, as many of our mothers are. Um, she is a woman who chased down this dream of turning an abandoned plantation into a museum and never gave up, no matter how difficult that was, and whose passion was kind of spreading this word as far and wide as she could. And she finds a lot of inner strength in um, a song from a musical, <laughs> the Impossible Dream is the song that she would play every night when she got home from a hard day's work over a glass of wine. She would play that to dream the impossible dream, to remind herself that even though our battles sometimes seem impossible and we keep hitting these walls, there's nobility just in fighting the battles. And that is something that, by example, she is showing Harriet. But Harriet doesn't feel it inside her heart yet when this story begins. So she's constantly thinking of her mother as this touchstone, this example, because she wants to figure out how to be her, how to survive, how to keep going the way that she kept going, even when things were as frightening as they were. And the big tragedy for her mother is that um, her mother, and this is not a spoiler, at the beginning of the book, she has passed away from cancer. And part of the reason Harriet believes that, that she may have died so young is that her pain wasn't taken seriously. And so that issue of, you know, Harriet's living on this plantation and trying to teach about the past, but the harms 
that are rooted in that past continue into the present. So trying to figure out how did her mother handle it all? How did she shoulder it all? She's her, her really her guiding star. Well, I was going to just conclude by saying, we met your mother. She came to Portland for um, a reading and we interviewed her and we went to lunch with her. And your mother has laid the bricks for, for your journey. And when I gave her this book to read, she said, I see a lot of myself in here. <laughs> I see a lot of myself. She said, you didn't have to tell me, <laughs> but I see a lot of myself in here. And, and it's true. My mother has been sort of like fighting this good fight and putting her work into the world since the year that I was born, you know, 1987. And to have watched her journey and to, and to see her go through it all has been an incredible honor. I feel like she kind of raised me up to sort of, to keep doing it and try and do the same. You know, it hits me. We said your mother, you said my mother. Tell us your mother's name. Yeah. Say her name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say her name. Her name is Jewel, Jewel Parker Rhodes. Yes. And um, she is the author of historical fiction for adults and also some wonderful, I mean, some of the best ever children's literature going. You guys spoke to her for Yellow Moon, I believe. Yes. And, and she's been writing lots of uh, middle grade novels since then. She's the author of Ninth Ward and Ghost Boys and the upcoming Treasure Island. She's doing a treasure, a, a black Treasure Island retelling that she's really excited about and that has features as a character <laughs> one of my childhood dogs. So we're all excited. <laughs> I tell you what, we have about three minutes left. Can you read us out? Is there a I sure can. The closing that, passage? That sounds great. All right, so Don, Harriet's childhood friend, has returned from a long time away. And he says to her, I never understood how you could live on this plantation. The truth is, I didn't want to live here. Not at first. Dad was born in Louisiana, but he met mom in New York. We had a duplex in Pittsburgh where he got tenure at the university. And until my eighth birthday, I'd never been down south at all. For my present that year, Dad took Mom and me on a road toward the South. We drove all over Louisiana and Georgia, stopping at every African-American museum along the way. At first, we had a blast eating junk food and singing along to Motown hits. Mom put her bare feet up on the dash while Dad drove. At every stop on our historical tour, Dad let his nerd flag fly. History, and especially Black history, excites him so much he can hardly contain himself, and Mom and I were just happy to be along for the ride. Then the mood soured. Several of the black museums dad plotted on his tour were closed, shuttered. He rattled doors and peered into windows, cursing under his breath. Other sites were terribly underfunded, on their way to vanishing. Dad got agitated as the trip went on, eating more junk food and mumbling to himself. Mom tried to keep the mood light, but even she couldn't get through to him. If we don't remember our history, we're bound to forget it, dad kept saying. Why don't we stop at a plantation museum? Mom asked. There are about a million of those. Dad frowned. White people run those museums because white people inherited the plantations. They practice more willful forgetting at those places than remembering. But the sites are still standing at least, still getting funding. It's the houses, Dad said. The big white monsters white folks find so beautiful. They attract the big crowds, the cash, but they don't center us. Though I didn't know it then, the seeds of dad's dream had already been planted. 
he'd already decided to buy one of those big white beasts attacking the master narrative from within master's walls. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We'll look forward to you coming back for your <laughs> next novel, but thank you for being with us today. I would be so honored. Thank you. This is Patricia Waltz saying thank you for joining us this month, and we look forward to talking with you again in July. Emma Jackson Ford saying see you next month. And Obi Hill saying she's a chip off the old block. <laughs> Tune in next month, July, where we will rebroadcast an interview of Jewel Parker Rhodes, Kelly McWilliams' mother. Thanks in advance for listening. KBOO Portland, listener-supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Sheba, up next after these headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy jueves primero de junio del 2023. 
Montaño llevaba consigo un contrato de 35 millones de pesos mexicanos para administración de capital humano especializado con el gobierno del Estado de México, el último bastión del poder del Partido Revolucionario Institucional, el PRI, que ha gobernado el Estado de manera ininterrumpida durante casi un siglo. Comprobó dos veces la dirección de la empresa, que resultó ser un apartamento en el segundo piso de un edificio residencial de color rosa pastel en una calle corriente con bares tapiados 